We uh, are starting a new series, and it's from the book of Isaiah. And it's actually a two-for-one kind of thing because we finished up our series on the Minor Prophets, and uh, we finished up in Ecclesiastes and right before that Song of Solomon. And if you just turn the page over from those books, you'll find Isaiah. It's uh, one of the longest prophecies in the, the Scripture, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And we're going to do a two-parter in it. The first three messages are called Behold Your God, and they uh, bring us into the, the throne room of God. As a matter of fact, I think I have a slide here. We'll, we'll talk today about the glory of God. Next week, we'll talk about the greatness of God. And then on Thanksgiving Sunday, we'll talk about the gratitude that's due God. And, and we kind of have to have that picture in our heads before we start the, the Christmas stories where we understand that God made a way through the birth of His Son and that His birth and life and death and burial and resurrection and promised return, that's the gospel. But Isaiah sort of looked ahead to that. If you remember a little bit about the series we just got finished with, we, we talked about the lies that our culture tells. Robert, is this mine or is this somebody else's? Is this already been? Oh, well. <laughs> Sorry if it's not mine. We uh, talked about the lies that the culture tells us and that Scripture has a, a, an explanation or an answer to that. And, and the way that the writer of Ecclesiastes finished up, he said the fear of the Lord is the answer to everything. For us to, to truly have a, an attitude towards God that is reverential or that, that says, hey, you're God and I'm not, and, and you're not my co-pilot, and you're not my buddy, you're not my homeboy, you're not my bestie, you're, you are God and you alone are God. That's what all of these worship songs have been singing about. And so when we dive into this particular uh, set of Scriptures, we're talking about Isaiah's realization that God was God and that He was holy and that He was separate and that He was terrifying and that in light of His own choices and so forth, that he just didn't measure up. So that's kind of what I want to talk about today. So if you'd find Isaiah in your Bible, I, I want to kind of set it up for you. Today we're, we're talking about Isaiah chapter 6, and it's really interesting because Isaiah 6 is sort of the, the um, calling of Isaiah. It's just sort of like when God said, hey, I want you to preach, and you're going, well, you're just you're calling him in chapter 6, what happened in chapters 1 through 5? Well, what happened in, in all those places that are before the one where you were called and, and, and what was going on and all of that? Well, I'm glad you asked, even if you didn't, because that's kind of what today sets up. So our three messages, Behold Your God, are going to set up five messages on promises kept when we look at all of the places in Isaiah 
where eventually the prophet says, hey, the answer is not in anything we can do ourselves. The answer is in something that God has promised that is going to come for us somewhere in the future, uh, a baby that will be born who will take away the sins of the world. And so that's where Isaiah is going. Now, okay, what does it have to do with us? Maybe you listened to the, I, the prophets, uh, the wisdom book series, and you said it's great that these are lies that the culture tells us. It's great that the Bible has answers for those things, but that still doesn't get into my life where I have neighbors that I don't like, where I have a boss that I don't like, where I have a family member that doesn't like me, where I've got a gate agent at an airport that's unreasonable, where I've got uh, this going on in my life, or this going on in my life, or this going on in my life. Because we, we all get a little personal when we start looking into the pages of Scripture because we sort of filter it through us. And so what Isaiah does is to allow God to kind of tell him to get over himself. Get over himself and just realize that before anything else can really be embraced, it comes down to us figuring out who God is and who we are, to see God for who He is, to see ourselves for who we are. That's what sets us up to anticipate Christmas. That's what allows us to understand the why of the Christmas story, not just the what and the details and the kids dressed up like shepherds. It's, it's the, the, the why of it. Why did that need to happen? And, and that's kind of what this prophecy is about. The lies of culture are no more evident than in a political season. When the nasty things that are said one to another, one about another, where nothing seems to be off limits, it's like the, 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 the veneer of culture is kind of peeled back, and all of us go, we desperately need a Savior. So would you pray with me as we get started this morning? Father, we all come to this place, whether we've been coming to church for a long time or whether we're watching online or brand new or whatever, where we understand that there is a separation between us and you, that you're not casual, that you're not, uh, you're not just here to give us advice or to make us feel better, but that you are God. You have created all things. You are invested in all things. You have called us to Yourself. You have given us this incredible privilege of being with You. So for the ones who are hurting in here today, Father, over something that didn't turn out the way they thought it might, over a marriage, over kids, jobs, relationships, tragedies, mistakes. God, we, we share those stories. And I pray that you will be in us today as we look into the Scripture and find that you're there. You're not one of us. You're not our, our buddy, our friend. You are a holy God, and yet you receive us 
You redeem us and you call us to yourself. Help us to see that no matter what our situation is. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're talking about our relationship with God, but we got to do a little backstory first. The book of Isaiah is kind of fascinating. It's one of the longest Old Testament books in the Bible. If you were to go to Israel, you might go to Jerusalem, and there's a museum there called the Shrine of the Book. And in that museum is the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was the, the longest, uh, most complete of all of the Old Testament books, and almost all of it is preserved in that museum for you to be able to look at an actual uh, scroll from 800 years before Christ. Uh, if, if you start digging under the hood of Isaiah, uh, he, he's, he's like a, uh, we call him an 8th century prophet, which means he was somewhere between uh, 720 and 790, and, and that's 8th century before Christ. And, and so that puts him speaking to the people who were in the south, Judah and Jerusalem, because the people in the north had already fallen to the Assyrian armies, and, and part of his message is, if you guys don't change your ways, the same thing that's happened up there is going to happen down here. And lo and behold, it did. And so the first five chapters of Isaiah are him telling us why this message is needed. And if, if you look at it a little bit, the, the first verse tells us that this is a vision. It's not a poem like the wisdom books, and it's not uh, history like Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus. It's not gospel like Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. It's not uh, 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 apocalyptic like Revelation or Daniel. It's a vision. It's, he had a dream that God gave him and, and he wrote this dream for 66 chapters. The first 39 of those chapters speak of what he's doing in Israel at that time and in the near future. Then chapters 40 through 55 are what he's going to do long-term through the Messiah. We'll get into some of those in our, uh, the last part of this series. And then, fascinating, the last ten chapters of the book are what God is going to do way, way in the distant future, what He's going to do in last things, how He's going to call a close to this world. It's a, it's a predictive prophecy that if you start digging into that, you go, whoa, that's way far off, and it is. And so he, he speaks about what's going on in the past, present, and immediate future of Israel, what will go on because he's sending a Messiah to us, and what will go on at the last of life, the last of the world, the last of times, the end of all things. And then this is all contained in this one incredible book. Isaiah tells us that he prophesied or he spoke over the reign of four different kings, and it actually would have been five. He, see, he identifies in verse 1, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We kind of know that it was Manasseh who was the, the son of Hezekiah who executed or had uh, Isaiah executed for his prophecies. And so, for five chapters, he tells the nation 
that they are not doing the right thing. Verse 7, chapter 1, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Chapter 1, verse 13, don't bring any more vain offerings. Stop with your vanity already. Stop with your emptiness. God is not impressed with what you're bringing Him. He wants your heart. Then He says, uh, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, says the Lord. I'm not even going to hear your prayers anymore because your hands are full of blood. You, You have hurt other people. Then he tells them, wash yourselves, make yourself clean, cease to do evil, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He's given us an indication of all the crummy things they were doing. They were abusing all these people. But then he gives us a hint. He says in chapter 1, verse 18, why don't we reason together? Why, Why don't we have a discussion? Your sins are like scarlet but they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. And he goes on to uh, talk about how uh, the the nation is is not doing the right thing. And and in chapter chapter 2, verse 22, he, he says, Uh, The Lord alone will be exalted, verse 11. And then he says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Stop paying attention to your sports figures or your politicians or your CEOs or your… Stop with all of the worship of people because that pales in comparison with what I'm talking about, a worship of a God who is holy, who who is terrifying. Stop worshiping people. Stop abusing each other. He pronounces a number of woes in in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. He uses a phrase a whole lot, if you're reading Isaiah, in that day. And he's speaking about a day of judgment. And again, Isaiah spoke about judgment in Israel that was present and near future. He talked about judgment in the whole world that was a little farther out, and, and the day of the Lord is a, is a phrase that means that God shows up for judgment, that, that, that God has decided to render a verdict on that day. He, he's decided that something is going to happen on that day that will indicate that He is present, He is God, and we are not. And so, on that day, the day of the Lord, it may be near future, it may be present, it may be distant future, but it is a day that God says, enough of you trying to manipulate what I'm going to do. I am God. So, for all these chapters… He says, you're doing the wrong thing. Chapter 5, verse 11, (laughs) I love some of this. He says, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Sounds like an 11 o'clock game in Baton Rouge. (laughs) Who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Now we've moved to Athens. He says, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. They they won't even find out about me. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. You're you're weaving lies uh, to tell about other people. Woe to those who call evil good. Verse 20, chapter 5, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. 
Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. <laughs> Verse 22 is my favorite in the whole chapter. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. A hero <laughs> for drinking wine. <laughs> now we're back to Baton Rouge. I mean, we, we make light of it, but, but apparently it was such a big deal that, that there were people who were self-medicating, people who were, who were chasing after the pleasure of the moment, and in that they abused anybody who stood in their path. So it's, it's really interesting to me that chapter 6 is set up with the context of all of the rest of it. In other words, you and I, we're, we're living in a world that calls evil good and good evil. We're, we're living in a world where there are heroes that drink in wine and, and whatever else. We're, we're living in a world where people rise up early to plot how they can uh, achieve the greatest amount of pleasure for that particular day. We're living in a world where earthly people are, are put on pedestals as heroes and, and almost godlike figures, and God said, I'm having none of it. And so in chapter 6, he pulls Isaiah into a, 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 a relationship, an experience, and that's kind of what I want to look at today. Let me read the text for you. Chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. So we know that that's somewhere around 742 to 735 before Christ. So it, it gives us a particular date. That's a real king, really uh, historically. I saw the Lord. I, I, he was sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him stood the, the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew. The, the seraphim is not mentioned very much in Scripture. It's, a, it's more in Isaiah than anywhere else. And apparently a seraphim was, uh, the, the word comes from a root word that, that indicates a serpent or a snake. So it was some kind of a flying cobra or, or something that was unique in its appearance, had six wings, with two he covered his uh, face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and he said to uh, the others, he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And then the foundations of the world, they shook. They shook at the voice of Him who called, and, and we don't even think that's God because it doesn't, it doesn't uh, give honor to His title. It just says, we don't know who called, maybe a herald, maybe another angel. We don't know. But the, 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 the foundations shook at this voice. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell with a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with that coal. He said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. That word there is the altar of sacrifice. He says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell the people. 
So what are we going to do with all this? Uh, what are we going to do with this? Okay, you're going to have to make that slide move because I need it to. We're dying here. Okay. Are we stuck? Frozen there, Robert? Huh? No, we're good. Let's take this apart. Let's take it just a little bit at a time. In the year that King Uzziah died, it brought him there. And all of these five chapters tell us that there was a desperate need for God. There, there was a desperate need for, for God to show up. There was a desperate need for something. All the stuff that the people were trying, it wasn't working at all. All the stuff that they were doing, they were hurting each other. They were chasing after pleasure. They were doing all the things that kind of the wisdom book set up. But, but, but it just tells us that a God that is bigger than all of this was desperately needed. Then you read a little bit more and, and we see what's going on there. I saw the Lord. The, the Lord is present. The, the Lord is, is, is on the scene. The Lord is alive. So, so we, we realize that there's a need. We realize that God is alive, that He's not a, a legend. He's not a, a, a fable or, or something from, from mythology. He, he is God, and He is alive, and He has drawn Isaiah into this, this relationship with Him, this, this confrontation. I saw Him alive, and He is the Lord told you a couple of weeks ago that not many people had chairs back in the day, back in this day. That, that most people had stools and benches and pillows and stuff, but, but only the, the rich had a chair. Uh, you remember Lady uh, Wisdom ha- didn't have a chair, but, but, but Dame Folly did, if you remember back from uh, the, the, the story. And that they, the, the nobleman sits in the chair. Well, well God is on the throne. It's, there's no doubt in our mind that He is the King, that He is lifted up, that He is uh, in control, that He is alive, that He is needed, that He's in control. He is the Lord. He's sitting on a throne, and He is magnificent. He's high and lifted up. Don't know if when Queen Elizabeth died, if any of you got caught up in the clickbait, and I, I did, and, and I stumbled across a picture of her when she was uh, uh, first crowned the Queen of England, and she was, of course, not much older than a teenager and, and diminutive in her appearance, and, and there was a grainy black and white picture showing her walking up the aisle of the Westminster Chapel. I assume that's what it was, and, and, and it showed six people, three on each side, and their job was to hold up the train of her gown. Their, their job, six human beings, their job was to keep this train off the ground. And it was so big that it took six of them. Isaiah saw a Lord whose train would fill up this room and, and a gazillion rooms like it. He said, I saw the Lord, and He was high and lifted up. He's not one of me. He's not my buddy. He's not my co-pilot. He's not the one that sits beside me and makes me feel good when I'm stressed. He is the Lord, and He's holy. 
He's separate. He is not like me. And, and, and all the seraphim, these flying snakes, all they could do was to cry out, holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And all of a sudden, Isaiah's kind of putting it all together in his head. We've got this toxic culture that we're living in where we chase pleasure and hurt each other and disregard God. And then I am compelled in this vision to be brought into the presence of God where I realize that He is high, He is lifted up, He is available, He is accessible, He is in control, but He's not me and I'm not Him. So what am I going to do with that? I'm separated from Him. I am a man of unclean lips. That's what Isaiah said. And of course, that's a little bit of a metaphor. And in that day, lips were considered, that's what food goes in. That's what thoughts come out. And so just like the heart was representative of everything that you are, the lips were representative of everything that you, you did or your, your thoughts coming out. It was sort of a gateway and, and my lips are unclean. I, 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 I've done wrong. I've thought wrong. I've surfed wrong. I, I've done things, God, that don't impress you in any way. I've, I've been a party of hurting other people. And then he realizes, you know what? I, I've watched the culture. Here I've been preaching against this culture for five chapters, and I all of a sudden realize that I am unclean, I am sinful, and I have tolerated what the people around me have been doing all this time. I, I've just allowed their stain to, to get on me, and, and yes, I've preached against it a little bit, but I've, I've lived in this culture, and, and, and maybe I've tried to compare myself against some of it. I'm not as bad as they are. And all of a sudden, I, I'm undone, and, and he's lost. It's interesting that almost everybody who writes about this, uh, somebody who's had an experience, I don't, I don't know if you have, I, I have occasionally had, had the presence of the Lord to be just so evident and so around me. Maybe it happened to you in worship this morning where you just, you had such a sense of the Lord all around you that you you just couldn't think you couldn't be that every writer that describes having this experience says I was lost I didn't know where to look I didn't know where to turn I didn't know what to do I, I didn't have instructions I just had to be and that's where Isaiah he says I, I'm I'm undone I, I'm lost and then his sin began to weigh him down. He, he began to realize that, that he was in this culture, and in a lot of ways he was of this culture. And it, and it began to weigh him down. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. It was like the, the contrast. Do you remember when we talked about Proverbs? We said the word Proverbs means comparison. And all of a sudden Isaiah sees himself saint, sinful and stained. I, I, when I was in college, my mom finally came to my college somewhere in my junior year. She came to my dorm room. I think I was living in the fraternity house at the time, and she looked at the sheets on my bed, and she said, those were white when they left Stone Mountain, <laughs> and they weren't anymore. <laughs> and it was like this comparison of what they were supposed to be, and, and they were sort of gray flannel by then. 
and they started out white linen, and, and she could see that there was a, a contrast, a difference. It was apparent that my sheets were no longer what they were designed to be. This is what Isaiah felt. He's in the throne room of God. He goes, I, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I, here I thought I was a preacher, and, and, and I can't be anything but honest with you. As I, as I studied this, I, I felt the same thing. Here I get to stand up here, and I, I get to proclaim the words of the Lord. And, and, and then I look in the mirror and go, God, I'm not. And he says, I'm undone. What's going to happen to me? Well, God kind of solves it. He comes to Isaiah. I can only imagine Isaiah's on his face. And the seraphim kind of taps him on the shoulder. And he came to him. He, he didn't leave him there in his brokenness, his lostness. He didn't leave him there. He, he came to him. He, he, he flew to him. And he heard him. He heard his confession. God, I, I, I shouldn't be here. I've got no right to speak for you. I've got no right to stand in front of you. I've got no right to, to talk, to breathe, to be. I, I've seen you, and I, I expect that I'm going to die and be judged by you. God heard that confession. What a wonderful thing in 1 John 1, 9. The Scripture says, if we confess our sins. He is faithful. He's righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. It's exactly what happened to Isaiah. So the angel or the seraphim came with tongs and a coal and he, he put the tongs on his lips and he said, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Yes, you were lost. You were broken. You were empty. You were undone. And now I have made a way for you and God to be in fellowship with each other. And for Isaiah, it was this remarkable experience of a, a seraphim with a coal and tongs with us. First two lines of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They shall see God. And when we are broken and undone, and when we realize that we've got nothing to bring to the table, that it's all God, and He is holy, and I am not. And I am poor in spirit. I, I am at a place where God can begin to minister to me. And that's what He does. He, he redeems us. He, he takes our guilt away. He atones for our sin through the death of Jesus Christ, through His resurrection, through His promised return. And in the Christmas season, we'll talk about His birth and, and how supernatural that was and how God sent His only Son, John 3.16, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not come into the world to condemn it, but that the world through Him might be saved. We, we get it. That there's this, this thing, and, and, and for Isaiah, it was just this division, this moment of time. For us, it involves us embracing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because God, instead of touching our lips, He has sent His only Son to the cross. And then what does He do? He says, tell somebody else about it. Whom shall I send? 
Who's going to continue to speak to this culture, to the schools, to the workplaces, to the families, to the neighborhoods? Who's going to speak this incredible message that God is God and we are not, but He has made a way for us to be with Him. He has made a way for us to be saved and have eternal life. Who's going to tell the story? And Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. I think it's interesting that it's fire. You know, our, our picture of God's activity in the New Testament is, is a lot of times the, the fire of the Spirit descends and the, 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 the fire touches and the, the fire. And, and, and for me, that's always been sort of a prayer when, when I get to speak or when I hear somebody else speak or a worship team, let the fire fall, God. Let us, let us be so captured by a sense of Your holiness, a sense of Your presence that we are just brought into a place where we know You and You know us and we are just so caught up we can't think about anything else in the world. And all of a sudden my anxiety and my fear and my uh, distrust and, and my disappointment and, and it's just sort of caught up in a sense of who God is. The fire falls. And when the fire falls, our, our anxiety, when the fire falls, we are bold in our testimony. When the fire falls, we, we, we just don't want to leave. When the fire falls, we want to be caught up in it. And Isaiah was caught up in a place where he said, God, you are holy. And I am not. When the fire falls, when the fire falls, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he said, here I am, send me. We see God for who He is. We see ourselves for who we are. And we receive our instructions to go and tell. Would you pray with me? God, my guess is that there's somebody in this room, somebody online, somebody who realizes that, like Isaiah, they're undone. That they are sinful and separated from God. That they need Him as an answer. No longer thinking that it's an instant solution to anxiety or grief or disappointment, fear. But it's simply to be in the presence of the one who created all things. If that's you today, I'd invite you to say a prayer something like this. God, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for making a way for me to deal with the, the toxic culture I live in. Thank you for accepting me just like I am with all this, the junk I bring. Come into my life. Let me be a follower of yours and worship you forever. Amen. If you said a prayer like that, would you not let it just be there? Would you see somebody in a green shirt or a name tag in the lobby? Would you find one of our pastors? Would you find somebody that's sitting near you and say, I, I, I prayed that prayer and, and I need to take the next step. 
I need to figure out what it means to be baptized or what it means to be in a small group or what it means to discover uh, spiritual gifts. We have a, a session today after this service, discover your purpose to, to, to explore what it means to figure out what God wants to do with who you are and what you bring to the table. If you've got an interest in that, see our visitor people out there at the desk. But don't be neutral about all this. God did not allow complacency to be part of the equation in Isaiah's story. He, he didn't allow there to be this halfway in, halfway in, lukewarm. He, he didn't allow that as an option. He said it's going to take fire to burn. It's going to take fire to provide atonement. It's going to take fire for us. We know that it took the blood of Jesus Christ. He just doesn't leave complacency as an option. So do your business with God today. Do whatever it is that you need to do. If you're online, reach out to the digital pastor who's online. But don't leave it without doing business with a holy, holy, holy God.